It's good to see you all here this morning. We are in Genesis chapter 13. I invite you to open up. Genesis chapter 13. I want to talk to you all about two things this morning. One that is, I think, incredibly simple and practical, and the other that is profoundly prophetic. We're going to deal with both those in Genesis 13 and considering God's word before us this morning. I just want to let you know, before I start, I will be bugging out uh, almost before I say amen, because I have to be down in Oak Harbor, so do you, right? For the Nutcracker Ballet, we're all, in, some of us are involved with that, and it's at the Oak Harbor High School, and I think tickets are sold out, which is a good thing, because you do not want to see this in makeup. But anyway, we're, uh, so I'll be out of here quickly, so if you see me disappear, it is not personal. It's business. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, I pray your blessing over your word this morning. For all of us, Lord, for anything else that's taking place today, this is the most important this time we spend with you, and this time that we can hear from you. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us not only ears to hear, but eyes to see. You would fill up. You would increase faith. Father, I pray that you would continue, as you are so good about doing, to wipe away tradition and to set aside religion, that we would just walk with you, that we, like Abram, would be sojourners who trust you, who believe in you, who follow after you. And we ask that your spirit would be speaking and that as we hear, Lord, that our trust would increase. Spirit of the living God, I pray, bring your word to us such that we can understand in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. I'm going to stand up this morning if it's just the same for you. Genesis 13, 14, which reads, the Lord said to Abram, now after Lot had separated from him, he said, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. What an amazing promise. And we'll get to it in just a moment, but going back to the very beginning of the chapter, we see Abram coming back into the land, which is a good thing, because he was in Egypt, which was not a good thing. And if you were with us Wednesday night, or you've heard the latter part of the Wednesday night study, you know what happened when Abram went down into Egypt. You always go down into Egypt in the Bible. Note that. You go up to Jerusalem, down to Egypt. And that's a picture for us to understand, Egypt being a picture of the world and Jerusalem a picture of the city of God. Egypt being a picture of human uh, exercise, human ability, human strength. Jerusalem a picture of what God does. So he's now come out of Egypt and he'll be back in the land. And because of the choices he makes in this chapter, we're going to see his vision increase. Vision matters. Eyesight, seeing clearly, it's an important thing. Thursday, I went up to Bellingham to Binion Eye Center. I was looking at the potential of getting some new glasses, uh, so you can be waiting for that. 
I'll be sporting those pretty soon. And just to check my vision, tomorrow I'm taking Cheryl down to Redmond, and we're going to go to LASIK Plus and see if she's a candidate for LASIK surgery. It makes me a little nervous, but uh, she is sick and tired of trading out glasses, a pair for driving, a pair for watching TV. It's this back-and-forth thing. But eyesight truly does matter, especially right now, because we're two and a half weeks away from 2020. Don't think I'm not going to overuse that pun. You'll be hearing that a lot this next year. But Proverbs 15, verse 30, the Bible says, bright eyes gladden the heart. Isn't that true? Bright eyes gladden the heart. It seems to be a dynamic that works both ways, spiritually to physically and physically to spiritually, if eyes are open and clear. If there's joy in the heart, the eyes are bright. And if the eyes are bright, there's joy in the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. And he's talking spiritually. He's using a physical example to speak of a spiritual reality that, man, if your eyes are open to the truth, you're seeing the light of God, then your whole body's gonna be full of that light. He says, but if your eye is bad, you're not seeing the things of God, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's a heavy word from Jesus because if you're not seeing Jesus, if you're not seeing by faith what God is doing, then you're walking blind. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, understand that connection. It is unbelief that leads to blindness. Don't believe you're not going to see. You will not have clarity in this world. You will not have understanding, either for eternal things or even for immediate things. It's faith that opens the eyes. It's trust in Jesus that allows us to see where we're going. That's the simple, practical truth this morning. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, what does that mean? We walk by faith and not by sight. I, that's a Christian thing. I've heard that. You walk by faith, not by sight. What are you saying? Let me put it to you this way. How do you see the world? How do you view the world in which you live? How do you discern what's happening around you? What does it look like? And what are you looking for? Abram, as I said, is coming back up into the land, and he's finally seeing clearly. One of the things that I love about Genesis chapter 13 is Abram is right on track. He's following God. He's back in the right way with the Father. You may recall back in Genesis 12, it started out, God said, go forth and be you a blessing, Abram. And he went forth eventually, and then he went south, stopped, got stuck in there. He starts, he stops, he restarts, but now, now we're going to see Abram back on track. He's going to stumble again, be ready for it, but in chapter 13, it's just all good. He's coming up out of Egypt, up from Egypt, in good faith with what truly matters. Watch this, verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Silver and gold. Silver and gold. 
Everyone wishes for silver and gold. Well, I don't know if everyone does, but that's what Sam the Snowman sings in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, talking about silver and gold decorations on every Christmas tree. And I mention that because what's interesting is in that song, a little side note for you, a little bit of trivia, in the third verse of that song is something that's sung that we never hear. If you watch Rudolph, if you have the Blu-ray or DVD or you watch it on TV this year, you're not going to hear this verse. You've never heard this verse. It's never been on TV. But Johnny Marks, the writer of the song Silver and Gold, this was the third verse. This is really where the song was intended to go. It says, silver and gold, silver and gold, wise men brought gifts to the manger, I'm told. Mary was humble to see shepherds and kings there on bended knee. And that's the intent of the song. See, silver and gold, man, if your eyes are on stuff, if you're looking to measure some kind of wealth or value in wealth in this world, you're not seeing clearly. You are not seeing clearly. What's interesting to me about Abram is though obviously wealthy, this is one thing we can say was never a problem for him. Wealth was never an issue for Abram. I've shared with you before, I know believers, faithful men and women who love God, who trust God, and for whom wealth is just not a big deal. Some who have been blessed in wonderful ways, and they just see it as such. It's it's a blessing from the Lord. It's all from the Lord. And it's the right heart and the right attitude. I have seen people who struggle financially, and wealth is everything to them. So it's really not a matter of who has and who has not. It's a matter of the heart, and Abram's got the right heart. He's never swayed by stuff. That's not the intention of this man. He is content to be a sojourner. He seems to understand there's something more valuable to God than all the silver and gold that could be mined in the world. What's that? It's friendships. It's relationship. It's family. It's people. This is what matters to the Lord God. Think about who was present at the coming of Jesus at his birth. I mean, you've got Mary. Of course, she needed to be there. Joseph is there. And a bunch of shepherds come in. A little while later, some magi are going to show up in Bethlehem. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God is into people. God is interested in relationship. He's interested in friendship. He's interested in communion, in fellowship, in people being together and connected. And as we'll see, Abram understands this great value. But first, first, watch what he does. As he comes into the land, verse 3, he went on his journeys from the Negev, by the way, journeys is plural because Abram continues to journey up and down the land. He is a sojourner. He doesn't stop and settle. He continues to move about because, as Hebrews tells us, he's waiting for a better city, the promised one. So he continues on his journeys from the Negev, down in the south, up as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And this, I believe, is very significant. If you track him, you realize that, is, that, that Abram coming up out of Egypt doesn't go back to the, fla- the place of first appearance. He doesn't go to Shechem. That's where God first appeared to Abram in the land, verse 7 of chapter 12. No, instead, he goes to the Second altar he builds, he saw God in Shechem, built an altar there, 
But Abram, when he comes back into the land, doesn't go there. He goes to the second altar. He goes to the place between Bethel and Ai, and there he calls upon the name of the Lord. Why? Why not restart? Back to the beginning, Abram. Back to where you saw God. See, that's what I would do. If I want to get closer to God, I'm going to go back to the place he appeared to me or the place I heard from him. I'm going to try and get in that position, and that's kind of human nature. If you have an experience with God of any kind, we find ourselves wanting to go back to the experience, and Abram doesn't do that. Abram goes to the second altar he built, the place that he called upon the name of the Lord, and note that he does it again. Abram called on the name of the Lord. We talked about this Wednesday night, but get this, because you'll hear this phrase a lot. To call on the name of the Lord is not to go, Lord, Lord. And it's not simply to pray. He called on the name of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, blah, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. To call upon the name of the Lord is to worship God. It's to give your heart to him. It's to be in communion with him. To call on the name of the Lord in Jewish thinking, that is an act of worship. Joel chapter 2, verse 32 says, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. And Abram needed deliverance from his own foolishness down in Egypt, from handing his own wife over to Pharaoh to save his own neck. That was foolish. That was a mistake. That was lying. So now he's back up in the land, and I don't know, maybe Abram didn't even feel like he could go back to Shechem. Maybe he didn't feel like he could go to the place where God appeared, because if he appears again, what am I going to say? So he goes to the second place where he first worshiped the Lord in the, in the land, and there he worships. He needed deliverance from failed faith in Egypt. He needed to get right with God. So he goes back to the place between Bethel, house of God, and Ai, garbage heap. That's what those two names mean. And he goes back to that place in between, and I suspect he called on the name of the Lord in repentance. He called on the name of the Lord and just said, I'm back. Forgive me. Restore me. Our relationship is more important to me. I think it was a time of reflection and honor and worship. And I pause here because everything that happens in this chapter is traceable to this moment. Everything that is going to take place from here throughout the rest of the chapter, you can draw back and see this is the impetus for why Abram acts the way he does, why he says what he says, because he has just called on the name of the Lord. Please hear this. Here's the simple reality. Worship is essential to faith and godly vision. Having trouble seeing? Call on the name of the Lord. Uncertain of what's happening in life? Just stop and worship him. And you can do it anywhere. So that's the beauty of it. Worship is simple. Worship is not bands and lights and stages and smoke and experience. Worship is calling on the name of the Lord in simplicity, which is why, again, Abram doesn't go to Shechem, the place of experience and appearance. He goes to the altar where he first called on the name of the Lord, the place of his first worship. He's not trying to capture the thrill of experience. He's trying to just go before God in pure, simple, unadulterated worship. Four things to note about vision this morning. Number one, godly vision is strengthened in simplicity. And I'm talking about simplicity of worship. And again, 
I mean, this, this is so simple and yet is so easily missed in our world. If I'm confused, if I'm lacking direction, if I'm weak on understanding, if I'm uncertain in my life, and I need some vision to know which way to go, worship is key. Worship is key. Godly vision is strengthened in simple worship. Not on a mountaintop, not in a, in a retreat. Abram just goes to this stone altar built by faith as a memory marker that God called him to the land, and he just simply worships. Jesus said in John 4, 23, an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Simple. What I love about worship is it can take place anywhere. You can be in your car driving down the road. People will think you're nuts, but man, praise the Lord. It can happen in a small group in your home. It can happen when your family meets over dinner. It can happen on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. It can happen when two or three are gathered in his name because he's there. Spirit and truth, simple worship will strengthen godly vision. Verse 5 continues, now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together, and that's unfortunate. That's sad. When possessions dispossess families, when our stuff gets in the way and divides relationship, and it happens far too often, in fact, there was a time when Jesus was dealing with throngs of people, teaching massive crowds. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jerk. They've got an issue. Dad's died. The money's there. I don't know if this is the younger brother, probably. Tell him to divide it with me. I want my portion. I want my share. Jesus said, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? I love that answer. You see, embedded in it, if you hear it by faith, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Well, God did that because Jesus is the judge. He is the arbitrator. He is the one who has the right to answer such a question, and yet at the same time, humbly and in his human flesh, Jesus is saying, don't draw me into this. <laughs> don't try to pull me into your family squabble. And then he goes on and says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. I'm so worried about the money. That is not the thing. You should be more concerned about your brother your family relationship, your connection one to another, because relationship is always more important to God than, again, all the silver and gold in the world. You realize God is more concerned with your relationship with him than what you give on a Sunday morning. More concerned about your relationship one to another, and this is the part that it often breaks down. Oh, yes, I believe that God is about relationship and not religion, but I will not talk to him. I'm not pointing at you, Skip. I will not talk to her. Can't believe what he or she did to me. Hey, your God, who you say you trust in relationship, is about your relationships and cares about how you're doing in your families and in your friendships and in your connections. 
Yeah, but, but, but Rick, if, if I try to make right what is wrong in a certain relationship in my life, I'm going to have to humiliate myself. Yeah, probably. I'm going to have to take the downside. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would imagine. I'm going to have to, even though I'm right, I'm going to have to look wrong. How wrong did Jesus look on the cross? That's following Jesus. It's putting the value of relationship ahead of self-pride and saying he matters, she matters more than I do because he matters to me. That is God more than anything in the world. The Lord loves relationship. Verse 7, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. The situation was unsustainable. Abram comes back from Egypt, and man, he has amassed even more wealth. Lot has more wealth. They have flocks and herds spreading out all over the place, and you also have Canaanites and Perizzites there. And the land couldn't handle it. It was too much. So you got the herdsmen, and they're all fighting together and not getting along. Abram's stuff, Lot's stuff, and the Canaanites. And by the way, it's a specific little brand of Canaanites called the Perizzites, or I like to call them the Parasites. Because these parasites have their flocks and herds, and they're eating up the land, so there's just not enough for everyone to go around. Parasite in the Hebrew means villager. So these are, this is, these are villagers of Canaanites living in that region. I believe their fathers could be called, uh, parasite is peridzi in the Hebrew. The fathers could be called, <laughs> I can't do it, paparidzi. Mothers would be poparizzi, I guess. I don't know. Verse 8. Didn't work first service either. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. Do you see? Do you see what's happening here? A man who's just come out of worship is now dealing with his nephew, his family member. Let's not have strife. There's an impact of the worship. Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Second thing to note about godly vision, it sees through strife. Godly vision sees through strife. Now, wait a minute. Abram, you're the patriarch here. You're the one who came to the land in the first place. Lot just tagged along. You're the one who has the rights. How in the world can you say to him, look and take wherever you want. I'll go the opposite way. What he should be doing is booting Lot out of the way. Abram had every right to choose first, to plant his flag, to stake his claim. But as Fruchtenbaum says, Abram had the wealth, but the wealth did not have Abram. He was not bound to it. He was not worried about it. And his faith, again, I believe born out in worship because he called on the name of the Lord, his faith allows him a remarkable wisdom. He has an answer to the problem. And his answer is absolutely peaceful because Abram believes the promises of God. What promises of God? Well, back in chapter 12, verse 7, to your descendants I will give this land. Abram, this land is yours. And because Abram believed that, he didn't worry about where Lot went because the whole land was his anyway. His descendants were going to have this land. So if Lot goes to the right, he'll go left. Lot goes left, he'll go right, no problem. 
because God already made the promise and Abram believes the promise so he doesn't have to protect his property. How do you feel about that? Do you understand when Jesus very clearly said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well, that he's got you? How much do we strive to protect our property and our money and our jobs and our positions and and we're so worried about these things. And Jesus said to Martha, you're worried about so many things. There's only one thing that matters. And that's obviously the relationship we have with Jesus. The godly vision sees through all strife. Abram was able to walk by faith. In fact, Kidner says by faith he'd already renounced everything. He could afford to refresh the choice. I love that phrase. He could afford to refresh the choice. If you've ever made a decision for Jesus, guess what? You can refresh that decision anytime you want. You can return to simple faith. When life gets convoluted and confusing and your vision gets clouded, just refresh the choice. Go right back to simple faith. Kinder says, by faith, Abram opted for the unseen. He had no need to judge, as Lot did, by the sight of his eyes. Man, when you believe the promises of God, you don't strive. You know what you do? You sojourn. You just sojourn. Listen to the way James puts it. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. That's exactly what we see in Abram. It says, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure. That means genuine and honest. It's peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you're at odds with a brother or sister, if you're striving with someone, then you are not functioning with wisdom that's from above, but wisdom that's from below. Abram had this godly wisdom that gave him a vision to see right through the strife and have a simple answer that maintained relationship with Lot and had an answer for the land. How do I get that kind of peace and wisdom? Boy, I'd love to think like that. I'd love to be able to process the world peacefully and with heavenly wisdom rather than earthly. You know what's interesting to me, this word strife. Verse 7, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And that's the first time we see this word in the Bible, specifically this Hebrew word. It's a familiar word if you've studied the Exodus. The word is Meribah. There was Meribah between these people. Meribah is translated quarreling or contention, and it's the same word that later describes the contentious grumbling of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And in that story, they're whining, they're complaining, they're saying, you brought us out into the desert to die of thirst. The people are upset. God says to Moses, strike the rock. Moses takes his staff and he strikes the rock and immediately water just flows. 
starts pouring out of there, enough water to quench the thirst of every Israelite, to quench the thirst of their flocks and their herds, more than enough water to sustain all of their needs in that remarkable moment. And God showed us there his picture of divine provision. Do you know where I'm going with this? Strike the rock. The New Testament tells us the rock is Christ. Christ being struck brought forth the living water that then would be provision for any follower of God. To quench the thirst of a lack of spirituality in this world, to to whet our appetites, as it were, for godly things, to fill us up with the Spirit of God. Jesus was the rock, and he brings living waters to flow. Lot, now, on the other hand, has some eye trouble. Back in the story, after Abram says, the whole land's before you, verse 10 tells us, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley or the basin or the circle of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed eastward, and thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, sounds nice, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. You know what the word exceedingly means in the Hebrew? It means exceedingly. They were exceedingly wicked. The word wicked is ra'im. It's a grievous, malignant evil. They were exceedingly, grievously, malignantly evil. That was Sodom. This is a bad, bad place. And I'm thinking, Lot, what's the deal here, bro? Lot wasn't wicked. Lot was a righteous man. Bible tells us that. Therefore, a believer like Abram was a believer. Lot was was right with the Lord. He would end up saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. Why does he go down to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because like a lot of Christians, he had poor vision. See, you can be a righteous person made right by the blood of Jesus. You can be a follower of God. You can be good in church attendance. And you can still have really poor vision if you're not walking by faith. See, those of you who have walked for a while in Christianity understand that walking by faith isn't just wearing a name. It's not just showing up at church. Walking by faith is what we do every moment of every day. Do I trust Jesus or not? Am I following him and his will for my life or not? Am I seeing things spiritually or am I seeing things physically? And that was Lot's problem. He looks out and he sees, oh, but it's beautiful land. It's ripe for the picking. Business is good. The money's flowing. And that's the mentality of someone who's just trying to get a lot out of life. Fruchtenbaum says, Lot also had wealth, and the wealth had Lot. Third thing to note about godly vision. Ungodly vision, this is the opposite, skims the surface. Ungodly vision skims the surface. Now, I'm talking directly to believers here for a moment. Now, you can, again, claim to be a Christian. You have been a churchgoer maybe for years of your life, and you can still have ungodly vision when you're just skimming the surface, when you're looking at like life superficially and naturally and physically. You may be a righteous person like Lot, but if you choose your associations 
based on superficiality rather than spirituality, they can seriously blind you to what matters. And I have seen this over and over. This is, for me, one of the, I would put this in the top five most heartbreaking things about doing pastoral ministry, is watching someone who is on fire for Jesus, following the Lord, loving the Lord, living for the Lord, and a business opportunity enters the picture. And next thing I know, there's strife, and there's dissension, and there's jealousy, and they're gone. And I've seen it too many times. How many times have you seen it, Rick? Well, once is enough. But I've seen it more than once, where a follower of Jesus gets caught up in a business scheme, and they're gone. And we think, we can handle it. I'm a righteous guy. So was Lot, and he ended up building his house in Sodom. Barely got out by the skin of his teeth because God rescued him from it, ultimately, eventually. But what a disaster for him. What did it cost him? It cost him his entire life. It cost him his wife. Relationship with his daughters was ugly and messy. Moabites and Ammonites would come out of that whole thing. We, we talked about that. And all because this righteous man had poor vision. He skimmed the surface. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. This is 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now listen, that passage often translated, don't be unequally yoked. We use that as a marriage passage. Oh yeah. Yeah, if you're a believer, don't marry a non-believer because it's going to be messy for you. You can make that application, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about ungodly associations, period. He's talking about business associations. He's talking about cultural associations. In fact, he's addressing the Corinthian church's cultural connection to paganism. And he says to them, look, you're trying to follow Jesus while holding on to old pagan roots. You're trying to follow the Lord while hanging out with pagan people who are drawing you back to your old ways. Ungodly vision doesn't see that. Ungodly vision just says, hey, here's a business opportunity. That looks good. I can make a lot of money. And I'm sure God's in it because, you know, I can make a lot of money. And we end up entrapped in these things. Let me just ask you, are you bound to ungodly things socially? Are you hanging with ungodly people? And when you're with them, you find that your faith, your walk with Jesus really shrivels up when they're around. Are you involved in a work or a business or a relationship? See, the problem with, with binding yourself to another in a business relationship with a non-believer is what if the non-believer starts to do exactly what non-believers do? Act like non-believers. What if they start to do whatever it takes to make the business a success, and now you're in this relationship, what are you gonna do? You either have to walk away and lose everything, or you find yourself aligning with that, and next thing you know, pagan practice. Paul says, don't do that. Don't get yourself hooked up where you 
can't get out. Has the church in America become accustomed to ungodly customs? I'm hearing yes. You know why? Because we've skimmed the surface instead of looking with eyes of faith. And it is ungodly vision that skims the surface. Lot's error was he walked by sight. Note that. It says back in chapter 13 that Lot, verse 10, lifted up his eyes and saw. And that's all he needed. Whoa, looks good. I'm going there. You know what we don't hear about Lot in the entire story? We never hear about Lot praying. We never see Lot build an altar. We never hear Lot call on the name of the Lord, not once. He's a righteous man, he believes. He's got that going for him, but his vision is clouded. Isaiah 64, verse 4 says, From days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Paul took that verse, that prophecy of Isaiah, and he quotes it, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, saying, Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he trusted what he saw. But God wants to bring you to a place you have not seen. He wants to share with you things you have not heard. He wants your heart to receive what the heart has not received, something bigger, greater, better. On the other hand, number four in your notes, godly vision scans for the unseen. Godly vision is always looking for what God is doing that we haven't seen or that we don't know. Seeking unseen spiritual things, 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen, these are eternal. John puts it this way, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. And you know what? The things that you see, this world, he says, the world is passing away and all its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Godly vision, seeing what God wants us to see. And how that comes is very simply through relationship, through worship. Your vision is cloudy, worship the Lord. You're not seeing clearly, call on the name of the Lord. That's how you see your way clear in this life. Now, here's what I really wanted to talk to you about this morning. Introduction's done, so we can get into the meat of the study. If you look forward in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, this is where we get profoundly prophetic. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes. Note the contrast. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw and moved to Sodom. The Lord now says to Abram, lift up your eyes. God waited until after Abram gave Lot first choice. He didn't say a thing. He didn't stop him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Abram, I gave you the land. This land is your land. This land's not Lot's land. Don't give it away. Abram, you idiot. See, that's what I would say. God doesn't stop him. He just lets him go forward, give Lot the land, no problem. And when it's all said and done, he says, lift up your eyes. Why didn't God say a thing? Because he already knew Abram was walking in worshipful faith. 
He knew Abram was wise and peaceable and godly, and the way he was moving reflected the things of God. Let there be no strife between us. So he didn't have to say anything. Abram's in faith. Now that all that transaction's taken care of and Lot heads off to Sodom, God then says to Abram, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. This is now the third revelation of God to Abram. And in this, he visually confirms the promise that he had made. Look, look everywhere, Abram. Northward, southward, eastward, westward, check it out. I'm giving it to you and your descendants forever. By the way, note that. He says, I will give it to you, verse 15, and your descendants, which means Abram, Abraham, yet has some land coming to him. Though he's buried in the cave of Machpelah, he's going to come out and he's going to take his inheritance. He's going to own the land that God promised to him. But I want you to catch something here. I just find this interesting from a, from a Hebrew perspective. Northward, southward, eastward, westward. If you look at those words and the Hebrew mindset behind them, northward is sapona. Sapona means it's basically standard north. It's just a word for north. Southward is negba, which comes from the negev. The Negev is the desert area, the desert region in the southern area of Israel. So anytime a Jewish person in Israel says, we're going to go south, they're going toward the Negev. So that's what southward is. It means toward the Negev. Eastward means toward the sunrise. That's Kedemah. And then westward is Yama, <laughs> which means toward the sea. Northward, southward, eastward, westward. Listen. In Hebraic thinking, north is always measured with the left hand. North is always to the left. I mean, not, not if I'm standing facing south or, you know, but there's a connection here. North is the left hand, south is the right hand, west is behind you, and east is in front of you. That's, that's the correct position. North to the left, south to the right. West, back behind me, and east, straight in front of me. Why? Because that's the direction God's coming from. That's where the Lord returns from. Ezekiel chapter 43 tells us, he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Well, that's Jesus, right? Ezekiel 43 verse uh, 4 and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. So in Hebrew thinking, that's how you measure direction. Okay, north, south, west, east, because that's where God's coming from. That's the direction. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. One of my favorite places in the world is to stand on the Temple Mount, and look toward the East Gate, and to know he's coming that direction. He's coming back. Well, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will make, I, I, look at all the land you see, again, north, south, east, west, everything that Abram could see. I will give it to you and your descendants forever, unconditionally, which means Abram did nothing for this promise. God just said, I'm doing this, 
Abram, to you and your descendants, and in perpetuity, that is forever. And there's no duration stuck on that. This land is the land of Israel. This land belongs to the Jewish people. Always has, always will. And listen to this, Dennis Prager, who himself is a Jew, says there's nothing analogous in the world to the Jews' attachment to the land of Israel. Nor is there anything analogous to the Jews' return to Israel after almost 2,000 years of exile. In other words, nothing like that's ever happened in all history, ever. Nothing comes close to the relationship of the Jewish people and the land, the Israelites and Israel. And he writes, for many Christians as well as Jews, it's the most obvious and dramatic example of a divine promise fulfilled. Is there any question when you read this as to God's intention for the land? Who did he want the land for? Who did he give the land to? And how long did he give it to them? The Bible makes this obvious. And by the way, in the land of Israel, do you realize that in all human history, there has only ever been three sovereign states in Israel? Three sovereign nations in the land of Israel. The first was the Davidic kingdom, the first Jewish state, circa 1026 to 586 B.C. The second was the second Jewish state after they came back from Babylonian captivity, 530 until 70 A.D., and then the third was the current Jewish state, 1948 to present day. There has never been any other nation established and sovereign in that area. Oh, there have been Canaanites. There have been Romans and Ottomans and Britons, but none of them established a nation. Like the nation of Israel, it's the only one ever to have been an established nation in that place. It was nothing to the world but a commercial land bridge between Asia and Africa or a place where you could have big battles and fights. Otherwise, it was just an annoyance to every single nation in the world that ever conquered that land. They didn't do anything with it. I'll tell you what, after, after Israel was driven out in 70 AD, it just became desolate. Under Ottoman rule, they intelligently said, let's put up a tree tax. So everyone who has trees, they'll get taxed on their trees. So what do you do if you're going to get taxed on all the trees in your land? Cut them down. And the land became desolate. No one ever cared for the land the way the Jews have always cared for the land in the entire course of human history. No other national existence, identity, departure, or return even comes close to comparison to Israel, both the land and its people. And God's the one that established that. That's why we talk about these things the way we do, why we consider Israel the way we do. This is not a throwaway people any more than it was a throwaway land. And the way you explain this, the way we understand this, chapter 13, again, verse 15, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Jesus said, hey, learn the parable of the fig tree. And any Jewish person knows immediately what he's talking about, the fig tree. Well, that's Israel. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. It's a descriptor of Israel. In the same way we might say the eagle is, a, is an image or a picture of America, the fig tree for Israel. Learn the parable of the fig tree, he says, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see these things, recognize he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation, 
shall not pass away until all these things take place. What change? Well, when you see the fig tree budding, putting forth its leaves, you know the end's near. 1948, the fig tree budded and put forth its leaves. The third nation state of Israel back in the land again, miraculously, stunningly, prophetically. Jesus said, that generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But understand, generation, what does that mean? It could mean the generation alive at the time that Israel became a nation again, 1948. So, so that's this generation. That's us. But the word generation, Genoa in the Greek, can also mean specifically a people group, which is even more profound to me that not only could it be the generation alive at the resurgence of Israel, but it could be the people of the land themselves. They will not pass away. God promises before all these things take place. And here we are, 4,000 years after God's promise to Abram, and guess what? They're still here. Still Jews in the world, a tiny population by comparison, and yet look at the impact. We're always talking about Jewish people. They're everywhere. Kind of like, I don't know, the dust of the earth. I will make your descendants, verse 16, as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. So the generation alive at the time that Israel becomes a nation, or the generation is Israel itself, which one is it? I think it's both. I think we've got a double entendre in Scripture there that means this is the season. This is the generation that will see the second coming of Jesus Christ, our generation. But it's also the people who God has kept over thousands of years as he promised. But watch this. God's promise to Abram and his seed emerges. That that word generations, note it in verse 15, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. It's not descendants. It's seed. The word is zara in the Hebrew. Very clearly, it's the word seed. If translated into the Greek, and we see it used in the New Testament, it's sperma. Do you get it? Your seed, Abram. I'm going to give this to your seed. And the promise comes up again. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 4, lift up your eyes round about and see. I think the prophet Isaiah is thinking back to when God said, Abram, lift up your eyes and look and see, I'm giving this to you and your people forever. And then Isaiah says, lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms back to Israel. We are watching that miraculous, stunning fulfillment of prophecy take place before our very eyes, and it has been for the last 70 years. They're coming back. They're carried in the arms. Israel is being built up and restored once again. I'll give it to you and your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. And if you can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Note that. Descendants is used three times, and all three times it's seed. I make this promise to your seed, and your seed will be innumerable. You can't even count the number of the dust. Therefore, you can't count the number of your seed over and over, but note this, the word seed is in the singular form. What does that mean? 
Well, it, it can mean Abram's seed specifically. So through the seed of one man would come an innumerable people. So I will give it to your seed, and through that seed comes Israel. Or, or it can also mean seed singular as in there is one who I'm going to give it to. This will all come from you, Abram, to a single descendant. The seed. The seed of Abram. A singular seed. Jesus was saying in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, you're truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him saying, we are Abraham's descendants. Sperma. Which is just weird. I mean, to be in that conversation, if we were having that conversation today, that would just sound really weird. We're Abraham's sperm. Okay. It just got weird. You know what's amazing? We're Abraham's seed, they were saying, and they didn't recognize that they were talking to Abraham's singular seed, Jesus, the seed of Abram, the one Jew who holds the title to the land of Israel. Remember, he's the one, only one, worthy to open the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. He's the one who holds title deed to the land of Israel as a Jew, representation of all Jews, but he holds the title to the land. So what I'm saying here is that quantitatively, the seed numbers all the Jewish people, all Israel, but qualitatively, the singular seed numbers Christ, who is immeasurable, innumerable, incalculable as to his value. Jesus Christ, more valuable than the number of the dust in the earth, more valuable than all silver and gold. Verse 18, then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Do you see what he's doing? I mean, lift up your eyes. Do you see what Abram's doing here? As he's in the land, as he continues to sojourn, He's going place to place, and he's just building altars. Talked about this Wednesday. He's living in tents, so there's nothing permanent in Abram's lifestyle. But everywhere he goes, he's building altars. And by the way, so far, all three of the places he's been in the land are pagan. These oaks. We see the oaks of Mamre here. We see back in chapter 12, the oaks of Moray. We see Shechem. These three places were pagan enclaves where pagan worship took place, and Abram just quietly comes in there and builds a little altar and calls on the name of the Lord and leaves. He's establishing God's presence in the land. He's establishing God's promise for a, a future generation of people. He is taking hold quietly, peacefully. He's not fighting for it. He's not challenging anyone for it. He's just building his little altars and moving on, staying in his tents, dwelling, moving from place to place, step by step, moray to mamre, oak to oak, altar by altar. Abram is establishing the promise. You see, Abram is walking by faith, not by sight. It's faith that leads this man. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By the way, this is the first time we see any mention of Hebron in the Bible. Note that. It's important. Because Hebron, Hebron 
was originally called Kiryat Arba, which means place of the four. But now it's called Hebron. That's the Jewish name for it. Why? It comes from, it's a nod to Abraham. Or not the word, but what the word means, Hebron means communion or friend. It's relationship. Abram was called friend of God. So the Jewish people called this place Hebron, the place where he would put his tent and build this altar. Hebron is the place of God, the place of friendship with God. But note this. Mamre, because it's there at the Oaks of Mamre, Mamre literally means strength or vision. Put it together. Communion or friendship with God is strong vision. You want to see well. You want to know what he's up to. You want to have vision and clarity in your life. Communion with God is strong vision. That's the key. How's your vision? You find yourself clear-headed, spiritually thinking, looking at the unseen things rather than the seen things, or do you find yourself instead cloudy, confused, concerned, striving? How's your vision? When you lift up your eyes, what do you see? Isaiah 51 verse 6 says, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. Will you stand with me? I don't even know how many times in my life I've heard sermons about walking by faith and not by sight. It just sounds so simple. In fact, so simple, it's not always that clear. What does that mean? To walk by faith, not by sight. It means you worship God. It means you call on the name of the Lord. It means from the most simple circumstance to the most complex in your life that you're laying it before God and saying, you're the one with the wisdom, not me. You know what you're doing, I, I don't. So I'm calling on your name, Lord, to lead me in your land, to show me what my next steps are. Call upon the name of the Lord. Again, it is so simple, we miss it. We're looking for the complex, looking for the, the laws and the rules and the legalism, the things we can do to prove ourselves. God says, you know what? Come to the Oaks of Mamre at Hebron. Come commune with me, and I will give you strong vision. You'll see so clearly. You'll see so well. And it's so vital that we understand this, because Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verse 11, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parallel. That is, if you believe, you have the mysteries of the kingdom set before you. If you don't believe, you're going to hear everything in terms of parables. Everything you hear from the Bible, everything you hear from God or from believing people will be like, now what does that mean? I don't get that. Belief is everything here. And Jesus goes on and he says, 
They receive everything in parables, that is, unbelieving people, so that while seeing, they may, not, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. And, and you read that, you think, wait, wait, Jesus, are you saying that you're trying to make it hard for non-believing people to believe? It's reverse psychology, folks. He's saying, if you want to see, believe. You want to hear? Trust me. Because he follows that statement up by saying, otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. That's in Mark's gospel. It says forgiven. In the other three gospels, the same quote is there. The other three times it says they might turn and be healed. Open your eyes by faith. Trust me. Believe in me, and I will heal you. Believe in me. I'll forgive you. See, that's the offer of Jesus to anyone who does not believe and to everyone who believes. Keep it simple. Worship him. Call on the name of the Lord, and you will have strong vision. Father, we pray for this vision this morning. We just pray for eyes to see what you're doing, to be alerted to and aware of the unseen things, the eternal things, things like relationships, Father, we could look surfacely at each other's relationships, but boy, when, when we consider what is unseen, that is the value of one another. And the love that you have for us, that you want us to have for each other, that's, that's profound. Help us see these unseen things in our day-to-day. Help us learn, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, to read the unseen cues through discernment. We pray for the power of your spirit to be upon us, that we will do things with a wisdom that is from above, peaceably and gently, and for the sake of relationship. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning struggling with faith, anyone who would consider themselves a non-believer, anyone, Lord, who hears your word or reads the Bible and it's confusing and it all seems like parables to them, oh, Father, I... I just ask that your hand outstretched would be seen. I pray that faith would come, that belief would fill the heart of the non-believer this morning. Holy Spirit, move and work among us. We trust you. We believe you. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.